I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And we are thankful this morning that we do have the opportunity to open God's Word, a special occasion like we have with Christmas. And we get to talk about one of the most important events in the history of the world. Now, we might argue about which are the most important events. Somebody might say that creation is the most important event. And uh, it is very important. We wouldn't be here if God hadn't created us. Some would say that the death of Christ on the cross was the most important event, and we would have to agree that is extremely important because we couldn't have salvation without it. Others might say that the second coming of Christ is the most important event because we couldn't have the kingdom of God without that. But as we look at this, as we look at the birth of Jesus Christ, we have to say that this is also one of the most important events because without it, we have no cross, we have no redemption, there is no heaven for anyone, there is no hope for mankind unless Jesus should come into the world. Christmas presents challenges for pastors. All holidays do in one way or another because you're always looking for some text in the Word of God, just a little bit different way to present the message. Uh, Every year we come to Christmas, every year we come to Easter and these holidays, and you always want to try to find something that's a little bit different if you can. And the message I'm going to preach to you today I think is an unusual one. I think it's a very strange text to preach on Christmas. But we were reading in the book of Revelation at the beginning of this month in our congregational reading, and we came to this 12th chapter of Revelation, and I thought that I would like to take the Christmas message from this. Again, very unusual, but it's an important text because what it does is to really broaden out the scope of of Christmas and really put it up on the cosmic level. You know, so many times when Christmas comes around, we think of it just simply as that birth. It happened. Jesus was born. Let's sing about it, and let's uh, make make a beautiful noise. Let's celebrate the birth of Christ. And we may forget about what all was going on at the time that Jesus was born and what was has gone on in the history of the world and the difficulty that it was for Jesus to actually come to become the Savior of the world. And so as we look at the purpose of Christmas, we find it here in the book of Revelation on the macro level where the most powerful forces of the universe are come together in great conflict with each other over the birth of this baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Now, there is a conflict, but I have to tell you at the very beginning, this is not an equal fight. Good and evil are not equal and opposing forces. They are opposing forces, but they are certainly not evil, or equal, rather. On one side of the equation, you have the Almighty God, who is the creator of all things. And on the other side of the conflict, you have creatures, those that have been created by God. And God has created them for his own purposes. The overthrow of those evil forces is designed to accentuate the glory of God. Now, as we look at this text, we take a journey back all the way to the beginning of the creation. And then we fast forward through time, 2,000 years, to the time that Jesus comes, or he came to the world. And then we end up sometime somewhere in the future at a time that we don't know when it is, only God knows. 
Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse number 1, stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Revelation 12, verse number 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Father, thank you for this word that we have today. Open up this text to help us understand the message that you have for us today and help us to rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ, born in much conflict and through much pain and suffering, but yet the hope of the entire world. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the opening words of the Revelation in chapter 1, John wrote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ of all things that he saw. The most important fact about the Bible itself is that This book came from God. This is not a fairy tale that we're reading. It's not filled with myths and legends. The Bible is not a figment of one man's or several people's imagination. But we have here in our hands and what we're reading today, the word of God. And what we're reading in this particular text really goes beyond all human experience because we're looking at something that is supernatural. And the only way that we could ever see this or ever ever understand it or know about this is if God should see fit to peel back the curtain of this unseen world and to let us peer into it. Now, the Apostle John was told to write these things, and these are true visions of what he actually saw. But what he saw were things that were in the divine mind that God specifically wanted John to see. And he says here, as he writes in this 12th chapter, and there appeared a wonder, a great wonder in heaven. Now, as you are aware, and what we've just read, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God opened up heaven, God opened up all these visions so that John could see this. And in this particular chapter, he says, heaven is opened and he saw a wonder. Now the wonder here, that word wonder is the same thing as a sign. It means a symbol of something else. So heaven is opened up and John sees that there is a woman there and she is clothed with the sun and it says that she has the moon and uh, under her feet and she wears on her crown or on her head a crown that has 12 stars. Now obviously that can't be a real woman and so thus this wonder, this sign is a symbol that stands for something else. Well, we're left wondering what does it stand for? Who is this woman? What does it mean? Well, since we're talking about Christmas today, I'm sure that the first thought that would come to your mind is that this woman represents Mary. 
Now, this first verse says that this woman was about to give birth. And then in the fifth verse, it says that she brought forth a man-child, and it says that he is to rule all nations. And that brings to our mind the prophecies that we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so we read the passage in the book of Revelation and we see a woman and we think that this must be Mary that John is talking about. The Roman Catholics will interpret this as being Mary. And, of course, they always are looking for an excuse to to worship her. And so when you have something in the Bible that says heaven is open and there is a woman there and she has a crown on her head and she has these stars, well, that seems to them to say, well, it must be Mary. And it's a perfect excuse for them to come up with this terminology that they have that Mary is the queen of heaven. But they run into great difficulty with that interpretation because there is nothing else in this passage that even remotely tells us that this could be Mary. And then there's also difficulty because the Bible never gives us any hint anywhere that Mary is to be worshipped or that she has anything to do with the redemption of mankind. In fact, Mary referred to herself as a lowly handmaiden. She said that she was blessed to be able to be the one to bring the Son of God into the world, to bring the Savior into the world, but she's the very last one that would ever have asked for any recognition because God had chosen her. As you read through the Bible, you never find even one single instance where the apostles ever referred to Mary as a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. Not one time you'll ever find that the Bible says that Mary is to be worshipped, to be venerated, to be held up as anything special in the plan of God. The focus is always upon the Savior himself, and that's the one that we always keep our eyes on. So we look at this text, and we see this woman, and we wonder, what does she actually represent? Well, I'd like you to notice on your lesson sheet today, the listening sheet, that this woman represents the nation of Israel. On her head is a crown of 12 stars, and that stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the sons of Jacob. And if you very carefully read the preceding chapters of Revelation, you'll find that there is a prominent place for the 12 tribes of Israel. That there is a kingdom that's been promised to Israel, and Jesus Christ is the king who will come and will sit upon the throne of David in an everlasting kingdom. And when you have the opportunity, you might want to take some time to read Genesis chapter 37. And there you'll find the dream of Joseph. And in that dream, Joseph represents Christ. The sun, the moon, and the stars represent uh, Jacob and Rachel and Joseph's 11 brothers. And all of them bowed to him just as Israel will bow before King Jesus. 
Then in the second verse of our text, it says, And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. So here we see birth pains. We see labor taking place. The woman is ready to bring this child into the world, but bringing him into this world is not an easy task. This is a very difficult thing for Christ to come into the world. And that's because the cosmic forces of evil will do everything that they can to prevent the birth of this child. They want to stop him from fulfilling that eternal purpose that God planned from him for him from the redemption of the world. And so we see next that, that her pain is actually the struggle to bring Christ into the world. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to take a quick tour through the history of Israel, and we'll see just how difficult that it was for Christ to come. The promise that God would send a Redeemer is an old promise. In fact, it was given all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We only go three chapters into the Bible, into the book of Genesis, and already man is in need of a Savior. Now, Bible scholars differ about how long that Adam was in the Garden of Eden before he sinned against God. Uh, Most believe that it was a short period of time. But in that short time... Man rebelled against God, and he had sealed to himself a curse. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Adam sinned, and the Apostle Paul made this point, that the wages of sin is death because of what happened with Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. We know the story, how that God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said that in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And Adam ate. And so a curse was imposed and death was the result. At that moment, Adam died spiritually and his body began to die physically. And there we have the whole world cursed with death. And friends, that curse is still on us today. Every person born is born in sin. We're all born with a curse of death upon us. Every person born into the world is actually born dead. Spiritually, we are born dead, and from the moment that we enter this life and we take our first breath, we are headed for the inevitable, and that is our physical death. There's not a single person that will ever get out of this world alive. But we thank God for this, that he's gracious and he's merciful. He knew what would happen in the garden. He created man knowing what he would do. And God already had a plan in place to bring man back to him, to bring him into fellowship again. And the plan that God had was Jesus. His plan was that a child would be born. The plan is Christmas. But it's not a plan without opposition. Now, there were special people that were chosen to bring Christ into the world. The nation of Israel was the one that was chosen to give birth to this child. And when Israel was chosen, you know what that did? It put the nation of Israel right into the crosshairs of the most powerful forces of evil that wanted to prevent Christ from being born. Now that brings us to verses 3 and 4. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now John sees another sign in heaven, another wonder in heaven, And this, he says, was a great dragon. 
And the word great there tells of the extent of his power, that he is more powerful than all other creatures. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and those are also signs. Remember, signs are a symbol of something else. And there's far more here than I can tackle in one sermon this morning. But I can tell you very briefly that those seven heads refer to seven great empires that would come upon the earth. And the ten horns represent ten nations, ten powerful nations that will join in league with the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And all of these empires and these nations have one thing in mind, that's to either stop Jesus Christ from being born, that's before his birth, or once he has been born, to stop the eternal plan of God from going into effect. Now the dragon is explained in verse number 9, if you want to look there. And that dragon is the old serpent who is called the devil. This is Satan. And Satan is actually a fallen angel by the name of Lucifer. And so this great enemy of the woman is a fallen angel named Lucifer. Now the vision John has in verses 3 and 4 is a scene that takes place just before the creation of man or just shortly thereafter. It may have happened... uh, just at the commencement of the earthly creation. The Bible really doesn't give us the the exact timeline. Uh, I'm of the opinion that angels were created before the world was actually created, and so that means they were created outside of time. Uh, Time is a function of the created world. But in any case, God created angels, and one of these angels was named Lucifer, and he rebelled against God. And according to Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer was the chief angel, the highest of all the order of angels, and he was more powerful and more beautiful than any other creature that God had made. He was the standout angel among them all. And because of that great beauty that Lucifer had, he became very prideful, and so he rebelled against God. He thought that he wanted to be God. He wanted to take the place of God And so he attempted to overthrow God. Well, of course, that meant that God had to depose him as that chief angel. He could no longer have that position in heaven. And so God cast him out of that position. But Lucifer was not content to go alone. Instead, we find that the dragon took with him a third of all of the angels that were in heaven. Now, angels are referred to as stars in the Bible many times. And so in this rebellion, Satan drew the stars of heaven, one-third of all of the angels, and he convinced them that he could defeat God. And so he had them join him, and so God had to cast all of them out. So you have Lucifer thrown out and one-third of all the angels that are thrown out of heaven. And I couldn't tell you how many angels are in that one-third, I do know that there are so many of them, they're so numerous, that there's probably not even a point in counting them because there's plenty of them to do all the work that Satan wants to do. But here we also find the real key to this cosmic struggle because all of these, including Lucifer himself, are created beings. There is no created being that's more powerful than the one who has created him. And so what Lucifer has done, he is self-deluded. He's convinced himself that he is able to defeat God. He convinced these other angels that he could do this. But folks, that is something that's never going to happen. 
As Gary sang a moment ago, all is well because Satan cannot win the battle that he's engaged in. But that battle goes on. It's been fought since the very beginning of this world, and it'll keep on going until God sees fit to end it. I don't know when that's going to be, but I do know that God will destroy all of these evil angels forever. And so we notice then that this dragon, this serpent, Lucifer, the devil, Satan, all of those are names for this same one evil angel. He stands before this woman. He stands before Israel ready to devour the child as soon as it's born. Why does he do that? Why is he so interested in destroying this one child? Well, he is because this is the one that God said would destroy him. Now, we go back to Genesis and what God said that he was going to do to Satan because of that temptation in the garden. He said to Satan, And I will put enmity, or I will put hostility, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, the seed of the woman that is talked about there in Genesis all the way back 2,000 years before he actually came is Jesus Christ. And God said that Satan would have the power to bruise the seed of the woman. And there he's talking about the cross. That's an allusion to the cross. Satan would be able to bruise him, but that bruising would not be a fatal blow. But instead, this one would arise from the grave and this one would crush the head of the serpent. Just like crushing the head of a snake into the ground, this is what God said that Jesus Christ would do to Satan. So what do you think Satan wants to do? What is his main purpose? What is his goal? Well, I could put it to you simply. It's to get Christ before he gets him. So he wants to destroy the child of Israel before that child has a chance to destroy him. And so he stands before the woman ready to kill the child. And that is symbolic of all the attempts that Satan has made to try to stop Jesus Christ from coming into the world. The pain that this woman experiences is that struggle of Israel that went through all of those centuries before Christ was born. Now, we notice then, fourthly, that Satan vigorously opposes the plan of redemption. Now, in one sense, you might say that our fate, what happens to us, is actually immaterial to Satan, except for one thing, and that is that our success is also Christ's success. So the plan of redemption is broader in scope than your salvation or mine. It's the eternal cosmic scope of this plan, because what Jesus Christ plans to do, what God plans to do, is to return the entire order of creation back to the pristine condition it was in when it was created. And that means that the only angels that will be left will be holy angels, and the only men that will be left will be holy men. The only earth that will be allowed to exist is one that has not been tainted with a curse of sin, that it no longer has the effects of sin and death upon it. And so when Satan opposes the plan of redemption, what he's actually doing is trying to ensure his self-survival. Destroying the child is the only way that he could preserve himself. And thus we have the cosmic struggle. And the history of Israel is just this one long fight to bring Christ into the world. And then being unable to prevent it, the struggle shifted to Satan trying to prevent the work of Christ in saving his people and bringing in this everlasting kingdom. Now let me take just a few minutes to show you how that Satan made some attempts to stop God from 
completing his plans. The Old Testament gives us the promise of a Messiah king, and that's repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there are 1,525 verses in the Old Testament that refer to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. I only have time to read 1,200 of those this morning, so it's going to take a little while. But no, really, don't, don't worry. We're going to try to go fast here. And I just want to tell you about a few of the incidents that we find in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at one in the New Testament where Satan tried to stop Christ from coming into the world and failing to do that, then he tried to stop him afterwards. Now, the first one that we find in Scripture is the attempt that Satan made against Abel. In Genesis 4, verse 1, we find that Cain was born. And as I read this, notice the peculiar nature of the language. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, And listen, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, that is a significant statement. She said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And in that statement is the indication that Eve believed that Cain was actually the promised one in Genesis 3.15. She thought that Cain was the one who would crush the head of the serpent, that God is already going to make things right, that Cain is the son that will do this, a promised son. Now, Cain actually means possession. The name means possession, and it has the connotation of something that is prized above everything else. And so maybe, I don't know, uh, that thought was drilled into Cain's head that he's the one who's prized above everything else. But then Abel was born. And when Abel was born, God favored Abel. And so Cain killed his brother. Well, how wrong then was Eve about the identity of Cain? Now, there's an interesting verse in the New Testament that spells out his identity. First John 3 says, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So Abel was the godly one, and Cain, who is of the seed of the serpent, that evil man, rose up and he killed his own brother. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like before mankind ever gets through with the second generation, that the promise of the Messiah has already stopped. That Abel is the godly one, and Cain from the seed of the serpent has destroyed the one who is the godly one. But of course, God is always in control. He doesn't stop here. And so Adam had other children. Adam had other sons. And we learn from Luke chapter 3, verse number 38, that his next son, Seth, was the one who would be in the godly line of the Messiah. So God was watching over the birth of Jesus Christ, and he brought another son, Seth, into the world. Well, we move on a little bit through the history of Israel. As I said, I'm just barely touching on some of these. And the next one we have is the attempt against Jacob. Now, is it important that Satan would attempt to destroy or kill Jacob? Well, I think we could see why that that he would do this, because Jacob is the one who is the father or the uh, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob was called Israel. He was given that name by God. And so Israel is this woman. So you can well imagine that what Satan wanted to do was to kill Jacob. And did he try to do that? Let me tell you a little bit about his story. We read about him in Genesis chapter 27. 
We know that his grandfather, Abraham, was chosen by God. Abraham was called out specifically by God, and he was redeemed and promised that he would be the father of many nations. Then Abraham had a son. His son was Isaac, and through Isaac, that, that promise was continued. Then another son comes, and that's Esau. Esau and Jacob were born to Isaac. They were brothers that were, they were twin brothers. But if you remember the story, Esau was the one who came out first. And because of that, Esau received or should have received the birthright. Well, Jacob was born. He was favored by his mother. He was a mama's boy. He was a little conniving thing. And uh, he was a trickster. And oddly enough, that's the person that God chose. That's the one that God said would be in the line of the Messiah. Well, Jacob did not have the birthright, so what he did was to deceive Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He should have received the inheritance, but Jacob tricked him out of the birthright. And so Esau was determined that because of that, he was going to kill Jacob. In Genesis 27:41, and Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, and I will slay my brother Jacob. So Satan's plan is in place. No one but Satan would ever put it in the heart of anyone to kill his own brother. And that's what Satan did. And so it was Esau's intent to kill Jacob, and Jacob knew that, and so he fled from the face of his brother. But God is still in control. All is well, as Gary sang. God is still in control, and he miraculously changed Esau's heart, and Esau and Jacob were tenderly reconciled to one another. And so the promise was able to continue, and Jacob became the father of those 12 tribes of Israel. Well, there are many, many more of these, and we could talk about all of those. But let, let me take you to one that has, has sort of a modern twist to it. And this is the one that we can call the attempt at total extermination. Now, there are many attempts to destroy the godly line. If Satan could just do this, if he could kill just one person who's in the genealogy of Christ, then the promise of the Messiah is dead. So you could go to Matthew chapter 1, and there you can read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, everybody that's in his ancestry. And if Satan was able to kill just one of those, pick out anyone that you want. Pick out one of those. Pick out uh, Boaz or Jesse or pick out David. Pick out Zerubbabel, any of those. Pick one of those out. And if Satan is able to kill that one person, then the hope of the Messiah is gone. Now, sometimes Satan did that. We have a story in Second Kings about Joash, who was one little boy who was providentially saved by God, that Satan had all of his brothers killed, the sons of King Ahaziah, and Satan was trying to kill all of those descendants, but Joash, this one little boy, was hidden away and saved alive. And if that little boy had been killed, Satan would have won. But Satan has this has another tactic, not just dwelling on killing this one single person in the line of Christ. Instead, Satan had a plan to kill all of Israel, to destroy the entire nation. And I say that has kind of a modern feel to it because we've seen that happen, some of you in your lifetime that are older than me, and that happened in World War II. When, when uh, Hitler had the Holocaust, I mean, his attempt was he wanted to wipe out all of the Jewish people. So he wasn't the first one to try it. We find it also in the Bible. 
Same thing happened in the Old Testament in the book of Esther. Now, Esther is a book of the Bible that specifically deals with this attempt to exterminate Israel, and God providentially saved the nation from that extermination. Now, it's hard for me to condense that entire story of one book into just a few minutes, but this was the attempt of King Ahasuerus, who had the Jews in captivity. It was an attempt to destroy the whole nation of the Jews. And this wasn't an attempt like with Pharaoh, and Gary alluded to that a few minutes ago, uh, with Moses. There, Pharaoh tried to kill the male babies, and when he did that, he was hoping to stop procreation in Israel. Well, this was different, though, because this is an attempt to destroy every man woman and child in the nation of Israel. And to be fair to King Ahasuerus, it really wasn't his idea in the first place. He had no design actually to kill Jews or to kill all of them, but he had a wicked henchman by the name of Haman. And Haman was an Agagite. And the Agagites were traditional enemies of the Jews. And Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. He had an enemy named Mordecai who was a Jew. He hated him. And this whole thing was to be able to kill this enemy, Mordecai. He would just kill all of the Jews. But what he didn't know was that Queen Esther, who was Ahasuerus' favorite queen, his favorite wife, was a Jew. And so to attack the Jews was to attack her. And to make a long story short, Ahasuerus had Haman hanged on a gallows that he'd made to hang Mordecai. And that's where we get the expression, hang him high as Haman, comes from the book of Esther. And that's also where the Jews get the Feast of Purim that they celebrate today. They still celebrate this, that God was able to save all of the Jews. And that's when King Ahasuerus gave the permission to the Jews for them to defend themselves. Now, you can read that whole story in the book of Esther in just a few minutes. God is not even mentioned in the whole book. But there we find the providence of God. It's written all over it because he must save the nation of Israel. And that fits into the revelation because this is the only way that Christ can be born. The woman is Israel and Israel must be preserved. But let me go on with the story because it moves into the New Testament. There's a lot in the Old Testament that we could talk about, but there's, it moves into the New Testament, and thus we come to the Christmas story. And so we find the attempt to destroy Jesus at his birth. Now, this is actually sometime between the birth of Jesus and when he was two years old, and that's when wicked King Herod was visited by the wise men. Now, they told Herod that they had been following a star, And that was a sign that there was a great king that had been born in Israel. Well, Herod was afraid of any rivals. And so he told the wise men, wise men, you go find the child. And when you find the place where he is, you come back and let me know. And I'll come and worship him too. Well, the wise men went and they found the house where Jesus was. But God warned them that, Herod had no intentions of worshiping Christ, and if he found out the location of the child, that he would kill him. And so the wise men didn't return. They didn't go back to Herod, but they went home another way. And what that did was to raise the ire of Herod. And in Matthew chapter 2, we read about one of the worst crimes of human history. 
Matthew 2, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. So Herod found no way, saw no way that he could find Jesus. And so he just in one fell swoop issued a decree that all of these babies would be killed surrounding Jerusalem. Some think that he drew a a circle around the city of Jerusalem about seven to ten miles, and all of the little children, two years old and under, were slaughtered by Herod. Now, what does the Bible say about Satan? It says that he was a murderer from the beginning. And so Satan has always been consistent with this. He stops at nothing trying to kill the Lord's Christ. Well, we find at the end of verse number four, and the dragon stood before the woman and was ready to be delivered for to devour the child as soon as it was born. So many more of these attempts. We can look at the life of Christ and see the numerous times in Christ's public ministry that people tried to kill him before the time. In his own hometown of Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Satan tried to tempt him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. There were times when he healed people, and and he did all these great miracles. And in the midst of all of that, there were people there that really wanted to kill him, to take him right then and end his life before he ever went to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan tried to kill him there. But Jesus prayed for the strength to endure that and be able to go to the cross exactly as God had planned. So these things are Satan's plans. They're his doing. He understood the necessity of the cross. And so if he could kill Christ before the time, he wins. And if Satan was able to do that, we wouldn't be talking about redemption today. We wouldn't be talking about lifting the curse. We wouldn't be talking about a victory in this cosmic battle over evil. Because if Christ had died any other kind of death than the cross, then Satan would win. So we have all of these attempts to stop the birth of Christ. And the story has always been the same. Israel travailed to bring forth Christ. Satan persecuted God's people endlessly. And so we would have to ask, is that worth it? Was it worth it for Israel to have to go through all the pain and suffering of trying to get this one child into the world? Well, absolutely it was, because God blessed Israel through that. There's a blessing yet to come. There's a kingdom that's coming, and Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David in that kingdom, and Israel will be restored, not to one nation, not one small plot of ground, but to the entire world as the rulers over all of the world. So the woman pained to bring forth the child, and bring forth that child she did. Verse 5 says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now lastly, would you note this, number 5, the incarnation is the guarantee of salvation. Because Christ came, because he was born, we have the guarantee of salvation. Verse number 5 in Revelation 12 is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible because if you want to talk about a short, sweet synopsis of things, this is one. 
What it does is it, 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 over, it overlooks or skips over the perfect life of Christ. It skips over the death of Christ on the cross. It skips over three days that he spent in the tomb, and it skips over the resurrection. It skips over 2,000 years of earth's history since the time of Christ, all of uh, the church history. But it does mention this. It mentions the ascension. And when we talk about Christ, we talk about his birth, we speak of his life, we talk about his death, we talk about the resurrection. But do you ever hear very many sermons on the ascension? There aren't a whole lot of sermons on the ascension. We talk about the other things, and so it's kind of lost in the shuffle. But the Holy Spirit does not lose the ascension. Here he brings it in, and we ought not to forget it ourselves, because here is Christ now in heaven waiting for the day of his coronation. The woman delivered the child, God became incarnate, and the incarnation made the sacrifice for sin possible. Christ could not be our Savior. He could not impute to us his perfect obedience unless he came to the earth and submitted himself to the cross to die. He must submit himself to God's law. Galatians says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the incarnation, Christ being born into the world, is actually the allowance of the gospel. That's why we have a gospel. Paul said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and arose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul said that is the gospel that I declare to you. So what does the incarnation do for us? Let me give you just a couple of the promises of God that come out of the incarnation. First of all, there is, of course, the promise of the Redeemer. We read in Genesis 3.15 about this. Very early in the history of the world, right there in the book of Genesis, we have the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God cursed the earth, but then he promised that that curse would be lifted through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. So, also in the garden, we see God's grace. And the gospel is a gospel of grace. Man cannot redeem himself. And so God brought salvation to man. He brought redemption to man through the incarnation. And that theme of redemption runs throughout the entire Bible. That's what we're always looking for, always looking for, the coming of Jesus Christ, because that is our redemption. Satan couldn't kill the Redeemer, and so thus he couldn't kill salvation. There's only a conflict for a time, folks. It's only for a time. He could only bruise the heel of the Savior. Christ is coming to crush his head. And that brings me lastly to the promise of a ruler. The incarnation of Christ says that there will be a ruler who will sit on the throne of David forever. Verse 5 says that he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. That Jesus Christ is coming in a millennial kingdom. He will establish a, an everlasting throne and it will be a kingdom of perfect peace. And he will have the final victory over Satan. And so that old dragon is going to be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire. All of the, of the demons will join him. But that's not all. All unrepentant sinners 
will also suffer the vengeance of this almighty king. So when Christ comes, sin will be gone. Satan will be gone. Demons are gone. Evil men are gone. And final victory comes to all that place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is why God sent him into the world. Heaven is assured for all of us who are believers in Christ because the woman brought forth this child. So John peered into heaven. He saw the eternal scope of Christmas. He saw this battle that was raging between good and evil. He saw God and Lucifer fighting this out. And through pain and struggling, hardships, Israel brought the Messiah into the world. And so John was able to see God's success, that God would not be defeated, that God was determined, and so the child was born. And that's our hope, folks. That's why we're here today. The child was born. And that's why we thank God for Christmas. We have redemption, we have a ruler, we have our salvation because the child was born. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're just awed by the story that we have in the Bible. John letting us see and you letting us see this this conflict that takes place and right now today the forces of evil are around us and they're trying to stop the victory that we have in Christ they're trying to stop souls from being saved they're trying to stop this kingdom from coming but we have the utmost confidence in you that your promises are true that you will fulfill everything that you said it was a struggle to bring Christ into the world it's a struggle every day in the Christian life but just as you won When Christ was born, you will also win when the kingdom comes. So, Lord, we're looking forward to that time. Help us now to think about what Christmas is all about, to rejoice in the Lamb of God who came to die for our sins. Speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.